What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I want you to close your eyes. Everyone at home, close your eyes. Go ahead. Go back to what you were doing December of 2019. Will, as, as an LSU fan, I'm pretty sure that you were not sober very much in December of 2019. Life was good, nothing to worry Connor. about. I was about to say, I don't remember much of December 2019. I don't necessarily blame you for it. I think we're all kind of in a state of pre-pandemic euphoria. But nonetheless, think about where you were December of 2019. Now hear these words. By late September 2021, Arkansas will be a better football team than Clemson, and it won't be close. Now, Will, everybody listening at home, I want you to open your eyes and hopefully you didn't close your eyes if you were driving while listening to this. And if you did, and if you got into a car accident, um, don't send me the bill. But anyways, That's that is C-J the real world. Yes, yeah, uh, it's cogera at saturdaydownsouth.com. Send me an email. That is the world that we are living in today. And for one, even though many of us were high on the hogs coming into this year, Maybe some of us predicted that they would beat A&M and end the, the nine-year losing streak and that, that this would be a really incredible start and they would sweep the state of Texas. Nobody, nobody could have foreseen what has happened to poor old Clemson. I think Clemson is back to being poor old Clemson. Good for Dabo. This is, I mean, I, and this isn't just going to be a bash Clemson podcast because I, I did definitely say that Clemson was going to win a national championship this year and that has flown don't worry out about that Connor that was listen that was last that was last month we don't even remember that anymore now it's fully sure. bashed out of the season go go figure that the Cincinnati to the playoff prediction was going to have longer legs than Clemson winning a national championship that tells you everything you need to know about this year 2021 and how crazy it has been so far, we have a lot to get to today, um, including that Arkansas win. Of course, we're gonna dig. We're gonna dig into every non-Alabama game. I don't want to sit there and break down Alabama Southern Miss too much, but we will talk about Bama with the power rankings. I promise it's not just Bama fatigue. Um, we have the first edition of SEC power rankings on this here podcast that we are going to do at the very end. Now that everybody has had at least a little bit somewhat of a sample size. I know not everybody has an SEC game played this year just yet. Ole Miss still waiting on that. But I feel like we now have a better place to do some of these power rankings, though there are still some debates that are going to be all over the place. So we're going to do that. But first, I'm not sure if there are people who listen to this podcast who don't consume large amounts of Texas Pete. Couldn't be me. Couldn't be me as the Couldn't kids Couldn't be say. us, yeah. <laughs> Had my fair share of it over the weekend. This is, as I always say, the perfect time of year to load up on Texas Pete. I saw all these people tweeting about fall and how excited they are that there's a little bit of chill in the air. It just kind of feels like football weather. We're starting to get to that point. And to all those people who are experiencing that and not in Central Florida where it is still getting into the high 80s on a daily basis, I salute you and I can say that I am very, very jealous. But no matter where you are, you should be eating large amounts of Texas peat. 
Also, for our listeners, all you gotta do right now is go to texaspeed.com. You can get recipes, you can get t-shirts, you can hats, hot sauces, buy the box, whatever you want and get 20% off your order. All you gotta do, use that promo code Saturday Down South. That is all one word, Saturday Down South. That's what you do, texaspeed.com. Make yourself feel like you are in mid-fall mode right now. What is? What do they say, um, basic? What's what's the the basic uh, fall? Like that, there's like the the picture that goes around the the, the tailgating picture with the um, the girls in the hats a, with uh, with young thugs. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people have been photoshopped into that. Um, there's to me nothing more fall than than some good Texas beat. So sauce that's what I, I need to do, do is do just photoshop right you into that photo with like some boots and just like a Starbucks frappuccino and Texas Pete. You're just dumping the Texas Pete into the frappuccino. There's nothing wrong with a little PSL in the fall. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. We have we have a lot of pumpkin spice in this household. It's just good. Just good. All right. AM Arkansas. We gotta start with this one. I got I've gotten a ton of things wrong on this. Again, the Clemson pick. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna own that one and how wrong that was. My lock of the week missed as well. <laughs> Turns out Colorado State knew what it was doing against Iowa. Iowa wins that game, but it wasn't even close to really covering. And maybe by this time next week, the Cincinnati playoff pick will be dead and they will have lost to a Notre Dame team that suddenly figured out how to put its foot on the gas late in that game against Wisconsin. Listen, if you threaten to kill your entire team, it will motivate (laughs) Brian Kelly, if if that's what you got to do, apparently, you know, whatever. But I did feel like this game I had sniffed out pretty well. That is, Barry Odom's defense was going to disguise looks and frustrate Zach Calzada. And I don't know so much that it was disguising looks, but the drop eight coverage with only rushing three, it worked pretty, pretty well. Arkansas's ground game, it was going to pound away. And maybe the Hogs could get a chunk player two in the passing game. Traylon Burks, my goodness. That guy, I came into the year being so high on him and, and there were a lot of people that that were kind of like ah, i see a first round guy kind of don't really know what he is just yet and i'm saying look you've got to see the ball skills and i'm so glad that he got a national stage because i saw so many more people talking about what he was doing that non-catch that he had with the toe drag should be on his nfl draft film i don't care that that did not count that play was unbelievable you heard a gasp at Jerry World when they saw the replay and saw that he nearly made that catch. He is incredible and Arkansas is so fortunate to have him. I'm glad that he at least looks healthy. I know, I think he got banged up late in that game, but hopefully he's going to be all right. Sure enough, all of those things happened for Arkansas against AM. Arkansas followed the exact right game script that it needed. And it was kind of reminiscent of what they did against Texas, yep. where they come out and they get that lead right away. And when you get down against Arkansas, good luck. That's why even when KJ Jefferson gets his knee banged up and Malik Hornsby came in, it didn't really matter. And I know Jefferson came back in late. It looked like Hornsby, they didn't really trust him to be able to communicate with the offensive line with some of the issues that they were having with the clapping up front, whatever that was, Jefferson comes back in. So that's probably, hopefully, a good sign moving forward that he's not going to be out. They're going to need him against Georgia. But Barry Odom's defense was able to pin its ears back and get after Zach Calzada. On the Arkansas side, excellent game plan. That is exactly the way that you draw it up. Jalen Weidermeyer couldn't get any sort of separation. First catch came near the end of the third quarter. 
And that happened because the drop eight coverage, they made sure that whether it was Hayden Henry or Grant Morgan, whoever it was, was always in the vicinity at all times. And there was never really that clear window for Calzada, or if there was that window, it was for a split second. The way that he's processing right now, you can't really rely on him to be able to make that throw. Outside of that long run by Isaiah Spiller, AM only had 207 yards all day. The Arkansas defense is so improved from where they were at the end of last year when they had those depth issues. You tip your cap to Barry Odom because they put their foot on the gas early and they really made life difficult for AM. I want to tip my cap as well to Sam Pittman. He deserves all the credit. And his team came out the exact way it was supposed to. It exercised all those AM demons, even though that they had led in the fourth quarter four of the last seven times. They didn't let that get in the way. That game was theirs. It was theirs from start to finish. There's no blown fourth quarter lead, even though there were moments. And when Calzada threw that interception where Monteric Brown dives in and intercepts it, that was probably the moment that Arkansas fans realized that this is this is different this time. It wasn't Charlie Brown whiffing on the football once more. And that that to me is is the biggest win for Arkansas. And so I, I want to make sure that I give Arkansas its credit. And well, before I move on to AM, far far away on any any thoughts you have on, on the Hogs watching that game. Well, first off, <clears throat> as we're talking about Arkansas improving, can we get your new and improved? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> there we go, baby. Yeah, no, dude. That was, I mean, it's crazy watching that game because you think to yourself, like when KJ Jefferson went down, it was like, this can't be how this ends, right? Like it can't be that Arkansas just out physicals A&M over and over and over again and they lose their quarterback and it's like now they just can't get anything going. And yeah, like you said, that pick changed everything. I, I think that that was a team that just, you know, we talked about it with Texas, and I said on air, it's like, we should have slandered Texas more. <laughs> like, going into that game, we both had the feeling that, like, they were going to blow Texas out. This wasn't as much of a blowout, but considering Arkansas didn't have KJ Jefferson for, what, like, over a quarter. Yeah, and there were moments when everybody knew that Arkansas's offense was super limited. Oh, and yeah. it was going to be, it was going to be, look, you're, you don't really trust Malik Hornsby to make some of these throws. He can move well, and I think long-term, I, I, I do think he's going to be able to work in the Kendall Bryles offense, but that part of his game isn't quite there yet. Right. So if the, if the game were to be blown by that, then you would kind of look back and if you're an Arkansas fan, you would say, man, we always just find these new ways to lose to AM, and that would have been a really frustrating one. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Like, they, you know, if he doesn't get hurt and KJ Jefferson stays in it, it feels like this game is a bigger lead because they just had their foot on the gas the whole game. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, you just love to see that for Arkansas. They're such a fun team. They executed at all phases of the game. And it's about believing in yourself. And we talked about it over and over and over again. If you have a coach like Sam Pittman who can basically put that trust in his guys, we, we talked about it too with Jimbo, not really like scheming guys open and just kind of run this methodical, boring offense that was just dink and dunk and dink and dunk. And it's like, you look across those two sidelines and you got one dude who's just like, oh, you know, we're A&M, we're gonna handle this. And the other side is Sam Pittman just screaming and like ready to go. It's like, you know who's gonna win this game. Like you just, from the jump, it was like, okay, like these guys are ready to play just like with Texas. I'm glad you brought up Jimbo because- <laughs> Here we go. I've got some thoughts on that. Jimbo should be embarrassed with that effort. He was stubborn, he was on his heels, and most importantly, he was 
totally ineffective as a play caller. That game plan, I'm sorry, a m fans listening to this. I'm sorry that you would watch that because that game plan blew chunks. <laughs> Zach Calzada's throwing windows were still way too small. And I know part of that is on Calzada. But AM all but refused to run the football in the second half. And you can't tell me that being down 17 to nothing was the entire reason for that, especially after we just watched Florida down 18 points against Alabama, stick with that ground and pound game plan, and it worked. And it mm-hmm. nearly allowed them to come back against Alabama. And I get it. When your line can't protect a three-man rush, good luck. It's going to be difficult. But why are the only high percentage throws that Zach Calzada can get these little dump-offs? How did AM not know that Barry Odom would drop eight into coverage? Well, I told you what this reminded me of. This is like in basketball when you know your team is going to face a team who plays zone defense. Like, you know your team is going to face Syracuse. So all week, you should be prepping for the zone. You should be doing flashing at the free throw line. You got to have a guy running baseline. You got to have movement. You got to have pump fakes. You got to be able to figure out how to not just sit beyond the perimeter and chuck three pointers. AM was like the team who just panic dribbled and chucked threes all game. Isaiah Spiller had that 67 yard touchdown run late in the middle of the third quarter, and it made it a one possession game. And it looked like a struggling offensive line. And AM's offensive line was, was not particularly good. But it looked like it really figured something out on that play. And it was huge. To get that back to within one score, you're like, all right, now we have right. ourselves a ball game. So how many times did Isaiah Spiller, who scored a 67-yard touchdown in the middle of the third quarter, carry the football the rest of the day? Goose egg. Take a guess. Goose egg, as many as you and I combined. <laughs> there was 22 minutes left in that game and he was healthy. That simply cannot happen. And that's me saying that, not his dad tweeting it. Jimbo Fisher is on a $90 million contract and he forgot about his best offensive player. And I say that because Anaya Smith was coming off the injury, so he wasn't necessarily like maybe at his full potential, but he still looked pretty good in the moments. But this is the exact thing that I worried about with Jimbo. He can't troubleshoot. That is not his skill. And Will, you know this about me. One of my weaknesses is troubleshooting problems, especially (laughs) when it comes to technology. I get in my own head. I usually end up making stuff worse. You should have seen me the other day with the edger and the string trimmer and being able to re-spool that whole thing. It was a mess. Somewhere, Lauren, my wife, just heard that and nodded violently because she knows that I am not a troubleshoot guy. I can get away with it because I'm just a guy who covers college football for a living and I don't even have kids yet. Jimbo can't get away with it because he's an offensive-minded head coach on a $90 million contract at a program that's loaded with talent. I thought that was just ridiculous. The lack of adjustments made in the course of that game to not be able to dial up screens, to not be able to get Jalen Watermeyer in space. How is that guy going until like the third, late in the third quarter without even getting a target? What what are you doing? How are they not willing to stretch the field over the top? Demond Demas, who just had a breakout game in his first career start. How are you not taking some of these chances downfield? I don't care if it's in a double coverage. Try and do it at least once because Arkansas knew everything that A&M wanted to do. And Barry Odom's like, wait, so you're you're just not going to adjust? I can just do the same game plan the entire time? Cool. Great. Thanks. Awesome. Way to not run at a three-man front. Way to not make any sort of adjustments when clearly your quarterback is struggling. And Zach Calzada, every single time he makes a throw over the middle of the field, you're just like, all right, this, this is incomplete. Yep. This, this is no chance. 
No chance. And I feel bad for AM fans because your team is talented and your, de your, your defensive line is so good and that defense is great. And outside of that one big time chunk play with Burks, I know they let up 443 yards or whatever. I thought they actually played pretty well and they did some things to really frustrate Arkansas. But that sucked from your head coach and you deserve way better in a game that had such high stakes and to watch a year two coach do that to your program, man. That, that just, that is a bummer. That is an absolute bummer. And that's not my way of saying, oh, I think A&M is some fraud because again, the defense is still great. It's gonna keep them in those games. Well, I know we have a little bit of different opinions on A&M. I'm not necessarily bailing on A&M necessarily, but that was a setback game if I've ever seen, if I've ever seen one. Think about this. A&M has played two power five opponents this year and it's two games against power five competition. Two touchdowns, yeah, both of which. A negative scoring differential those two games. <laughs> both of which were by Isaiah Spiller, um, in case you were keeping track at home. That guy yep. should maybe, maybe have a, a carry in the last 22 minutes of a very important football game. But anyway, I don't want that to take away from Arkansas. I do not. Wait, wait, wait hold I, on, really I, quick, Arkansas hold on, really quick. Because on, on the Jimbo thing, I think you hit the nail on the head with one point specifically. It's that... You know, you guys get these four and five star offensive linemen every single year and send these guys to the NFL. You have this great running back in Spiller. You should go into a game against Arkansas and just ragdoll them. You should come in from the jump and be like, we are going to ground and pound you to death if your strategy is to drop eight. That is the strangest thing in the world. It's like, right? I mean, and, and, and we saw this yesterday with uh, the air raid. It's like, if you're running the air raid, you can, you know, dare them to run the ball. It's the air raid. If you're daring Texas A&M to run the ball with Jimbo Fisher in a pro style offense, this guy that has had great running back after great running back, this dude that is eaten off of play action. This dude that is like, his big thing has been have bigger, more physical teams and push you down the field and then get his quarterback easy, wide open looks. And it was like, yeah, it was like, you know, not slander, but like you trying to connect some AirPods out there, man. He was just, like, right. he was just yeah. trying to figure it out. It was like, hey dude, like we all see this, right? Like you, you know how easy this could be? <laughs> like, it's like, hey man, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what he's trying to prove. That's the thing. Like, it looked like he was at, like, betting against himself in that game. It truly did. And it's like, with some guys, like, okay, I always go back to LSU. It's like, with Coach O, you can say he can be a little bit too boisterous and a little bit too, like, oh, I want to get involved and everything. With Jimbo, it's like, dude, you're supposed to be this offensive, like, mastermind, and you're getting crushed by Art Bryles, who some would say isn't the smartest. Bryles. Kendall Bryles. Kendall Bryles. Oh, sorry, let's, sorry, let's, sorry. Kendall Bryles. need not say No, Art you're Bryles. right. You're right. You're yes. right. Yeah. Kendall Bryles. And I was thinking of Art Bryles because it's like, he yeah. might not be the best play caller in his family. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, and he's great. I think he's a great play, play caller. And they have, we were talking about it. I think they have the two best coordinators in the SEC. But it's like, you can't be on this contract to essentially be an offensive coordinator. You know what I'm saying? Because that's what Jimbo is known for. It's like, oh, Kirby and Saban are known for defense. Jimbo is known for offense. That is his side of the ball. And it's like, you're out there just calling like... Stuff I was calling in Madden in fourth grade, bro. Like, it's, it's why, like, so easy. Like, there's no trickeration. There's no motion. It's just, oh, cool, okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, you if, if it looked like Arkansas was a step ahead, that's because they, they were. How many times do, do you need to watch Hayden Henry be in the exact right place at the exact right time? How many times do you need to watch Grant Morgan know exactly what's going on with the A&M offensive line and how to be able to generate pressure on the quarterback? How many times does Trey Williams have to come rushing off the edge on a three-man rush and find a way to still somehow get pressure on Zach Calzada? Right. 
it was so it looked so easy for the Arkansas defense. It really, really did. And with the exception of that one big play from Spiller, I mean, goodness. Which that, again, that, like that, you that see that, you see that, you go, oh, this is working. Throw that part of the playbook out. Right. It's like okay, man. And, and you get your offense. And so if you do have a struggling offensive line, because I know that maybe that's a little bit of the pushback, and you'll say, hey, if you if you have an offensive line that that it really doesn't know its identity, and there, there are some tough moments for that AM offensive line. There really have been, and they've moved Kenyon Green around a lot because they're just like, we're just trying to plug holes right now. We're doing whatever we possibly can. The depth is not there. Jameer Johnson, the Tennessee transfer, had a rough afternoon. But when your offensive line is playing that badly, one would think, what's the best way to get them going? Run the football, man. Right. Run the football. So to me, I, I thought that game was, for the pro Jimbo crowd, that might have made you pause a little bit. And for the, oh, I'm still kind of waiting on the fence a little bit about Arkansas. They haven't played an SEC game yet. We've seen all these teams beat Texas and non-conference play in the past. Let's kind of hold off, pump the brakes on the Arkansas hype train. That game should make you a believer that Arkansas can hang around in the SEC West. And look, I had Arkansas with a 7-5 projection, starting off 4-0. So this is the exact start I had them on. But now I'm kind of thinking they do have New Year's Six Bowl upside. They absolutely do. I'm not saying that they still have games against Georgia. That's what's coming up next week. Awesome. But probably the best SEC noon matchup ever <laughs> to have two top 10 teams. I'm assuming by the time this is out, Arkansas will have clinched a spot in the top 10. We're recording this at 1030 on Sunday morning. But the, the, to, to have the, the remaining schedule where now you can look at that and say, hey, we got over that A&M hump. And what can this lead to now? That Those are really the only two games in the remaining schedule, the Georgia games and then the Alabama game that you look at and say, all right, yeah, we're definitely going to be a significant underdog here if we're Arkansas. But you feel much better about it. That Arkansas offensive line against Georgia's defensive line, one of the best matchups that we're going to get mm-hmm. in all of SEC play this year, maybe in all of college football this year. One last thing, one last thing. I want Arkansas fans to be present because I don't know how this turns out if this ends up being an eight and four season where you go four and four SEC play, not all eight win seasons are created equally. They just aren't. But I, I, and I think that they are, and I don't necessarily have to remind them of this, but I hope that Arkansas fans are truly soaking this in right now. They, they have waited for moments like what they got on Saturday and sweeping the state of Texas mm-hmm. is a big deal, huge deal. It's fun to be a top 10 team after a couple monumental wins and think, hey, we haven't really seen our team's ceiling yet. This is kind of cool. And you not only beat two top 15 teams in the first month of the season, but you did so by double digits. And you kind of did so by imposing your will against them. I'm not suddenly saying that Arkansas is going to go 11 and one, or I wouldn't even go for, for 10 and two or anything like that. But the hogs are players in the West. And that is all you could have asked for in year two of the Pittman era. And they're going to have a major say in how this all shakes out. They are not going to be a fun team to play 60 minutes of football against. Well, Simple as that. Best, I mean, easily they got the best resume in the SEC right now, just in terms of what they put on tape. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and it probably helped that Texas looked a little bit better on Saturday as well. And Texas is Texas is looking a lot better with Casey Thompson as a starting quarterback. I don't know why Sark went with Hudson Carr to start off the year. I'm not saying that Casey Thompson would have beaten Arkansas, but that's probably going to continue to help Arkansas where there are teams around the SEC. Bama with the Miami win that doesn't look as good. Georgia with the Clemson win that doesn't look Jeez. as good. And now we're kind of figuring out what's real and what's not. It's yeah, really hard right 70. now. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like yeah. say what you want about the Big Twelve. They're not gonna be there for long. But the concept of shutting that team down and then them putting up 70 points, like we joked about it. It's like certain teams I wouldn't trust to put up 70 against air. 
70 is not a number you just hit for fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that yeah. is a real thing to shut down Sarkeesian's offense and then Jimbo's offense. Like, those are two talented dudes that are getting paid multiple millions of dollars to not have that happen to them. And boy, did it happen to both of them against Arkansas and Sam Pittman. Like, you just, you love to see that because that's a guy that, like, you know, we talked about the, the tweets coming out when he got hired. It's like, oh, this guy will never make it. This guy will do X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, look at you now. You know, you got these two guys coming out of Texas while there's big oil money talking about how great their programs were, landed all these recruits. And Sam Pittman just out-physicaled them, outworked them, punched them in the mouth. And now you got two fan bases that are looking at themselves in the mirror like, what are we? And Arkansas knows what they are. <laughs> and, and it's one of the most fun things in college football. Like, this is one of my favorite developments I've seen in college football in a couple of years, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Let's move on to Georgia State, Auburn. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I wasn't planning on really digging into a lot of this, but the way Are that it we went, now, buddy. <laughs> we have to because Auburn almost went 2019 Tennessee on us with the Georgia State letdown. What what did we say? Never bet against Sean Elliott's team to cover and and, and go figure. Man, they, they did more than just cover. Didn't think he was going to have a two score lead in the third quarter. Mm-hmm. I I almost I almost don't know where to start with this one. How about Auburn survives only thanks to the heroics of a certain TJ Finley. Yep. Of all the games that I thought we would finally see, I shouldn't say finally, let me backtrack, let me start that over. Of all the games in which I thought we'd see Brian Harson reveal his Bo Nix leash. Right. I can't say I would have picked this one, can't say it. And remember what we said leading into this, that if Auburn struggled out of the gates against Georgia State, some would chalk it up as, oh, you know, they're worn out after a physical game against Penn State. And we could, that could be a thing, but we were always gonna play the results. The fact that LSU and Georgia coming up, maybe that could have factored into this whole narrative about Auburn's performance. Regardless of what the mindset was, there's one thing that's very, very clear. One team showed up to play a 60 minute football game and it was not the home team. Clearly, very clearly. Strange game. Auburn was without Owen Papo and Zacomi McLean. McLean just the first half because of that BS targeting penalty against Penn State, which they dug into a lot on college game day. And Steve Shaw, great hearing Steve Shaw get up there and say that he worries that the rule of a targeting injection won't carry the same impact if they were to take away the ejection part of it. Clearly a guy who understands it right now and is doing something for the good of the sport. Kudos to you, Steve Shaw. God, that was terrible. Um, anyways, but Auburn looked lost without their two stud linebackers. And they still have Wooten as well, so I don't want to rule him out here. But they looked like they could not tackle. Georgia State ran for 219 yards in the first half. Tucker Gregg, I, I didn't realize that Peyton Hillis still had college eligibility, but apparently he did. And he was able to play in this game. Auburn, zero offensive mojo. Chizik got a... So, I was watching this game and right when they go to half and sometimes I like it when I like listening to what a coach says going into the locker room, going into the halftime locker room, because every once in a while you get one of those great sound bites and then I'll always leave it on for like a couple minutes of what they're going to say immediately on the SEC network broadcasts Mm -hmm. when they go to, you know, it's whether it's Dari or PB hosting and then, you know, they got Chizik and Watson and CD and Chizik like had this kind of unfiltered moment mm-hmm. where he said, if you're an Auburn fan, there's nothing you can feel good about after that first half showing. And Chizik was absolutely right because on SEC Network, usually you don't get something that blunt. But when you're down like that to Georgia State and you're a four touchdown favorite, 
yeah, you, you should be able to say that. So TJ Finley steps in midway through the third quarter and he started using his legs a bit more than usual. I was surprised. I was really surprised because some of the plays that he was making, I was like, wait, I feel like I didn't see any of that at LSU. And I felt like he was kind of a sitting duck in the pocket. Mm -hmm. And there was a spark. There was a definite spark. And that's why Harson said that he got to play was because they needed some momentum and they had none of it. Special teams helped Auburn as well. Cam Newton's brother blocks that punt and they get a huge touchdown, um, which was kind of the turning point of the game. Very controversial ruling on a certain play on the final drive. Looked like an incompletion on that play to get into the red zone. Booth review kept it as a catch. Sean Elliott disagreed with that afterwards. Words. Let's just say SEC officiating um, consistent with how bad it is. Nonetheless, <laughs> the TJ Finley game winner, one of the plays of the year in college football. Yeah, it's hilarious it, that sounds <laughs> a phenomenal play. Hilarious that it took that, but a great play nonetheless. Unreal play to I watched that I watched the replay of that play like four times immediately after, and there are three instances in which TJ Finley should have been sacked for about a 20 yard loss. And then there was another instance in which the way that he was carrying the football, I was convinced he was gonna fumble or if somebody just touched that football, it's coming out. And that game ends basically right there because it's 24 to 19. And then for him to scramble the way that he did was unbelievable, unbelievable. And so to me, I looked at that and I said, this is, this is the type of stuff that if you're an Auburn fan, you, you can't you can't ignore it really, right? Like, I, I don't know how Georgia State couldn't get him down um, to be able to keep his eyes downfield to find Chadrick Jackson in the end zone. That's a moment for TJ Finley. Mm -hmm. that, that is a moment. So now what? Everybody wants to know. Do you bring in TJ Finley to be the starter? Or do you go back to Bo Nix? I, I have my thoughts on that. Will, where do you kind of stand on that right now? I mean, I feel like we've seen the Bo Nix experience, you know what I'm saying? I mean, well, let me ask you just like this this one question. How would you grade his performance against Penn State? I would have given Bo Nix a B minus mm -hmm. for Penn State. So I came away from that saying, I was ready to, to rip Bo Nix for the road issues and talk about the inconsistencies. And instead, I came away from Penn State being slightly encouraged and thinking, you know what? Maybe Bo Nix, and, and that's not to say that Bo Nix is the entire reason they're, they're trailing in that game the way that they were in the second half against Georgia State. Yeah, they did multiple things have to go wrong if you're yes, like getting agreed. just beaten down by Georgia State. Agreed. So you could look at the sample size through the first three games, and two of which were practice games, let's call it what they are, right. and say, look, Bo Nix wasn't that bad. He really wasn't. I've seen a whole lot worse of Bo Nix, and I, I thought just the things that he did well against Penn State to be able to sort of stay in the pocket when you knew that that pass rush was gonna be there. And I, I came away from that thinking, all right, you know what, maybe he's gonna hold on to this job. Little did I know that he was going to be rendered totally ineffective in that Georgia State game. Yeah, it was so bad, I, I mean, it was bad. I, I'll, I'll say this too, is it's like, all right, like, you know, you kind of need to stick with Bo Nix going on the road to an environment like Penn State because you know, like, I hate to say you know he can't LSU? embarrass you. No. You mean LSU? No, I'm LSU? talking about going to Penn State. I'm talking about that last, the last game. Like, oh, okay. they, they okay. couldn't have made the switch then, is what I'm saying. Like, oh, yeah, he yeah. Play, no, no, no. He was sure. playing well you? enough. Like, you keep your starter going into Penn yeah. State. Um, but it's like, yeah, you kind of, like, look at this, this road slate and it's like, man, like, I don't know. Like, ah. 
Finley, obviously, you know, he played for LSU. That's not that's not anything like new information, but it feels like after that game, like something changed a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And it feels like it's kind of like the sins of the father situation with Bo Nix, where it's like he had these bad years under Gus where, I mean. But never got pulled. Yeah. Never got pulled. Yeah, like exactly. And it's it's tough because it's like that's not under his control. He wasn't his own offensive coordinator. In theory, I guess he could have played a little bit better. But, I mean, he was a kid. He got started like game one. And that kind of like, I'm not going to say it broke him, but that's not the environment you want to be in. And, and it sucks to have to hold that against him because maybe if he had sat for a year and then started, you know, year two. Oh, yeah, and, sat like, behind Malik Willis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, hey. Malik Willis will still be starting if he took over that job. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But point being, it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing about Bo Nix is there's so much tape on him out there. Whereas Finley, like you said, like there was such a – that looked like a different player than the one at LSU. He was confident. He was mobile. And part of that's not playing behind LSU's offensive line, which is terrible, as we've talked about. But it's like that last play, that looked like I'd never seen that man before. Yeah. Th- it looked like, you know – so that's, that's the thing that, that I thought was really noteworthy about what Finley did. And everybody's going to talk about the last play mm-hmm. and, and, and how, how important that was. And, and you know, take, take that for, for what it is. A guy stepped up in the moment that they needed him and, and did what you would hope. But TJ Finley's biggest knock on him coming to Auburn was when he sees pressure, he's not very he good. He folded, dude. We talked about that. It was yeah. the, the SEC stat cat stat of like, yeah. whenever he felt any pressure, he became the worst quarterback in the SEC. Whenever he had a clean pocket, he was a solid quarterback. He never had a clean pocket at LSU. And so it's like, number one, I would hope Auburn's offensive line's a little bit better than LSU's. And number two, it's like, Maybe if he has spent this offseason learning the playbook and like not having a COVID year and doing all these different things to like get ready for this job. I don't know. It's hard to bench a guy after that. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to bench a guy after that play. Yeah. I so if you put Finley in against his former school, which that's that's what's coming up. Right. It's going to Death Valley. It's Death Valley, nine o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock local time start. It'll be in Baton Rouge. Remember that last year, Finley never really experienced Death Valley at night because <laughs> reduced crowds. Yeah. So that's keep that in the back of your mind too. And then again, Bo Nix in that atmosphere. I don't know. I don't think you have a great chance with Nix to be the first Auburn quarterback to win in Death Valley this century. Since Bill just, oh, Come on. Yeah, like, look. <laughs> that's my favorite I, stat. I'm sorry. Eventually, it's gonna end. I'm sure it'll end under Coach O. But that's just one of my. It's like one of those. Like it's like the Florida Kentucky stat and the the, the Florida Tennessee stat that were out there forever. It's like somehow, some way, that streak has gone on since '99. Yeah, uh, I'll, look. If if Arson comes out with with Bo Nix and kind of goes back to the well a little bit, it wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. It'd be a tough choice, and I, I've been a little bit on the more anti-Knicks train for a while, but I think I'd, I think I'd go Finley in yeah. this one because I've seen Bo Nix in three straight games since Akron fail to complete 60% of his passes, mm-hmm. fail to pass for 200 yards, fail to average 6.5 yards per attempt, and fail to have a run longer than 11 yards. So if I've seen that, and if LSU is all this tape on Knicks, and don't, I mean, that's I guess that's a stupid point because obviously they have all this tape on Finley. Maybe not this mobile version of Finley, the one that we saw last night. But I think I'd take the wild card of Finley and Mike Bobo's offense, mm-hmm. which I, I would have concerns about that. But if you're going to make a move and if this was a, a, a guy that you wanted to invest in for the future, 
man, I mean, why not see what you have right now? This, this Auburn team is not winning an SEC championship. It's not. And even though you're able to, um, even though you haven't started SEC play yet, it's going to get really difficult to start off. And I mm -hmm. think we're going to get reminders of that in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, fascinating dynamic. And I did not see this this playing out going into this one that we'd be debating Finley versus Knicks this soon. Real quick on that too. It's like against the LSU team that you've seen, if you play mistake-free football, you're going to win if you're Auburn. And Bo Nix, like you talked about the road splits. It's like, he's never been a guy who's mistake-free. He's the guy that will like, you know, be a gunslinger, take that risk, you know. And with Finley, he's a guy that will run the playbook. We've talked about this over and over again. That's his biggest thing is like, if you tell him run these three plays in a row and maybe make something happen if it's not there, that's what he's there for. And in that road environment, like if Bo Nix had this great road upside, you know what I'm saying? Like he had the Oregon game, like AS, which wasn't like a true road Neutral game. Side. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a true road game. Like it, it, you know, but point being, yeah, I mean, in terms of who gives you the lowest or the, the, the highest floor to come into Death Valley and not implode, I don't know, man. Let's go to LSU because mm -hmm. LSU goes on the road and wins at Mississippi State. And I, I whiffed on this one. But at the same time, and we were talking about this a little bit afterwards, I don't really think much differently of either team. Mm -hmm. And let me, let me explain that because th this was a great win for LSU on the road. Didn't realize that Max Johnson was rocking a streak of six consecutive three touchdown pass games, longest in the nation. Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of what we saw from him. That sequence in the red zone early in the game where MSU got home on this play where Johnson is trying to get it to Butte. Butte has a step of separation in the end zone, but he can't get it to him because he's being hit. And um, so it's an incomplete pass. And then the very next play, MSU sends, I think they sent like seven. Mm -hmm. It was like a seven man rush or something like that. And Max Johnson does this little, little step up in the pocket, sidestep, whatever it was, keeps his eyes on Butte, lets the route develop. And don't you know it, more Butte separation, touchdown LSU. I, I don't think Johnson is going to, he's going to blow you away with any sort of arm strength or anything like that. Heaven he doesn't so. manipulate the pocket. Yeah, <laughs> we know that. He's got to, he's got to see Will Levis, his biomechanics guy. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll connect the two of them. But even though he doesn't necessarily have the same ability to manipulate the pocket like a Burrow, like a Mac Jones or something like that, he, I, I just like that he's always got his eyes downfield. And I, I think that you could build around that. And that's why he's still been able to have success as a starter to still to, to always find ways to give you a chance. As for LSU's defense, good for Durante Jones. Mm -hmm. A bit of a rough start in this one. Um, not, not a rough start necessarily to this one, more of a rough start to, to 2021. Right. But without Derek Stingley, LSU played drop eight coverage and it worked. Your boy Flot, pretty good. Yep. Pretty good. Two turnovers that, that he was a part of. Uh, Neil Farrell, great push up front. It seems like the theme of college football this year was is this drop eight coverage and daring teams to run the football. And MSU didn't really get anything going offensively till late. LSU played this bend, don't break defense that worked. Mm -hmm. But Durante Jones exceeded a very low bar against Mississippi State. And that wasn't necessarily a given with the struggles that we saw against UCLA. But I still have the exact same concerns for LSU. And Will, um, I, I want you to weigh, on this, uh, weigh in on this as well. But I, I thought the LSU offensive line, still bad. Horrible. <laughs> just not good you'll you'll never get me defending them because they can't defend anybody anyway <laughs> yeah i mean and against teams who actually want to run the ball on the other side I, yep. i'm concerned 
uh, with that. Nothing Saturday really changed those two things, both of which could limit how long LSU hangs around in the West. Like watching the ground game of LSU and then turning around and watching Arkansas, it's a different ball game. Oh yeah, it just is. And and I, I get it. Arkansas doesn't necessarily throw the ball, rely on the pass in the same way that an LSU does, but. LSU basically got doubled up in rushing against Mississippi State, against a team who threw the ball 62 times. Yep. 62 times, and you got doubled up in rushing. Well, I think we came away feeling similarly about LSU moving forward. Yeah, I'll say this. I mean, I, I felt great about the defense in that game. And it's super funny because, you know, you go into these noon slates not knowing the chaos that today or yesterday would be. And, you know, LSU fans were furious that game. And I just kept saying, like, do you guys not remember last year? Like, do you... We led that entire, not we, sorry, LSU led. Okay, so, l- sorry, let me, let, me ask, let me ask you this. Furious because they couldn't get a pass rush with a three-man rush and because it seemed like MSU was getting some of these chunk plays and that the only time that LSU would get a stop was when Will Rogers got greedy. Was that why you think they were furious? You're putting a lot, uh, way too much sophistication into the anger, anger right, of the LSU sorry, fan sorry. base. It's really like, it, it's more of just the offense being stale, and I understand that. Mm. But, I mean, first off, basically, LSU fans want everything to be 2019. And it's just never going to be that again. You know what I'm saying? That, that was the best team college football history like people the bar got put you know we had five years of just stagnant less miles and then suddenly every year was chaos and then we had 2019 at the top and then it's like okay you need to just find the level you know what i'm saying a 10 win team sure. needs to be your expectation a 9 10 win team that's what lsu was for a decade before then anyway um yeah i mean point being I, I love the defensive game plan. You know, giving up these little dink and dunk plays, daring Will Rogers to go downfield, and almost every time he went downfield, with the exception of that late, you know, late strike uh, that was a touchdown, it didn't work out. That was where the, you know, the turnovers happened. That's where the incompletions happened. That's where, you know, the the flow started getting interrupted. And it's super funny because LSU fans have just made up their mind that, like, Coach O is just, like, this dude who meddles with the defense and does all these different things to limit LSU success where it's like you look at this game plan on defense and it was immaculate you know what I'm saying it was immaculate and like I said you go back to last year where Bo Pelini came out and you know basically ran a 4-3 all game and was just trying to play man coverage against uh, Mike Leach which is his dream Mike Leach's dream is about the defense he saw against LSU last year whereas it was pretty much just cover three all game they came on that 3-2-6 and really just sat on these routes and 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 whenever you have a quarterback like Will Rogers who throws the ball that many times he's going to get impatient and that was the game plan so I don't know I love what I saw out of the defense I think this was an LSU defense that really stifled Mississippi State when it counted Mississippi State obviously got back in the game late and that's what tends to happen especially against an offense like this that just stays on the field is like yeah eventually Mm -hmm. you're gonna have some blown coverages but when we talk about blown coverages what's a blown coverage it's a giant tight end running 80 yards down the field like we saw in week one not we're gonna give up a deep strike to Will Rogers on his 55th you know (laughs) completion so or, or attempt so it's like I feel great about that the offense has a lot of work to do that's the biggest thing I'm worried about the offensive line exactly what you talked about I, I i think that you know we gotta figure out the run game just as a you know as a populace of louisiana we i don't know who needs to step in there we need to call hester again but but it's rough man i it's rough i i joked about this i think i tweet it's like it's impossible that 2018 2020 and 2021 are the worst lsu offensive line i've ever seen in my life but i think all of it's possible and it doesn't matter who's suspended who's available for the running backs as soon as these guys receive the handoff they're getting met by two defenders it doesn't matter if you have fournette there he is guys whoever you have at that point it's not going to go well And I think that from the LSU side, this is a team that 
you're gonna you're you're not gonna get any style points. Yep. With the way that this is set up, and what we probably have learned in this first month of college football is that style points are kind of overrated at this point. Oh yeah, they really are. It just just get out with a win. There is more parity around this sport than perhaps anywhere else. So we I, I guess it is a little bit nitpicky, but we're talking about what LSU is going to be capable of in 2021 and. What that game established, though, and if you're an LSU fan, what you're encouraged by is that this was a, hey, it's no longer 2020 anymore. We have made adjustments. Mm -hmm. And against UCLA, it did not feel like those adjustments had been made. And so now you feel a little bit better about your team. As for the other side of the ball, Mississippi State, I want to just hit on this and then we'll move on because I know we still got a lot to to get to here. Mm -hmm. I think Mississippi State locked up worst team in the West honors. (laughs) Second touchdown came 53 mm. minutes into this game. Do you and think so? That that Mississippi State-Auburn game is going to be electric. Yeah, I don't know. Um, at least on the Auburn side, and I know Tank had a rough day, but at least I know I can get a home run play with Tank or Hunter, and I I just don't see that on the Mississippi State side. Yeah. The offense looks better, too, and, and it has these moments, but it's not good in the red zone. It doesn't run the ball particularly well, and it doesn't really want to run the ball particularly well. Any sack is just a death sentence yep. because they can't get those chunk plays. And Mike Leach challenged the onside kick in that game when it was clear that there was no LSU player who touched that. And instead of trying to get the football back, you burn your last time out and you essentially end the game right there. And Dan Orlovsky is on the broadcast saying, yeah, you got to challenge it. What do you have to lose? I'm like, the game. The game. Yeah, you actually have the, the, game, the game to lose here, Dan. The thing that you're playing for, and, <laughs> and probably wouldn't have made much of a difference because Mississippi State wouldn't have gone 80 yards in 20 seconds. This isn't some Jacksonville State, Florida State thing here. At least I don't think. Mm-hmm. But these, some of these moments with Leach are, are frustrating. And if you're a Mississippi State fan right now, you're kind of scratching your head, looking around, going, well, Arkansas is really good. Oh, A&M can still beat us in the trenches, and that's still going to be a brutal matchup. Who knows what Auburn's going to be moving forward, if Finley's going to be the guy, or if that was just kind of an aberration game for their their offensive and defensive lines. So you look at those things, and you kind of wonder, man, there, there are not a lot of easy wins on this schedule. And now you're 2-2. Two and two, You've lost two in a row. And that road to get to 6-6, six and six, it just, it's tough. It's going to be an uphill climb moving forward. Really quick on that. The point that you made about style points, I think is so true. And I think that, you know, even if you're Auburn and you get out of the Georgia State game with a dub, that's what matters. You know, Twitter.com does not matter. For this point, the college football playoff does not matter. You look at a day like yesterday and this season feels totally different, man. And I feel like we've gotten so accustomed to seeing the same thing year in and year out with college football, which is that Bama and Clemson and Ohio State and Oklahoma until the postseason are all sitting there at the top. And you compare your team to those teams. And if you fall short, you beat yourself up. This year, man, if you win a game, about it. be happy about that. It doesn't yeah. matter if you if the referees, you know, robbed the other team. It doesn't matter what happened. Literally be pumped about your wins because this 100% feels like 2007 or one of these wild years where, you know, you get out of like... I just remember that year so many times you felt like, okay, well, this season's over. 
And that's what this year is going to be. Like it last, like yesterday proved that. It's like Clemson's done. Like they can't get back into this one. They've now lost two games. Maybe they'll win the ACC, whatever. But it's like, don't beat your team up. But you look at like, not to jump ahead, but you look at the Florida-Tennessee game. It's like, be pumped about that if you're Florida. Be pumped about pulling away, looking like a great team. Be pumped about that if you're Georgia. Like relish these moments because this is not a stagnant college football season at all. It's a great point and it's a great segue. Let's talk Tennessee-Florida. Mm-hmm. I'm happy for Emory Jones. Oh, yeah. I really am. And I, I don't know what's ahead for him. For, for all I know, Anthony Richardson is going to replace him at Kentucky next week. <laughs> and we'll have a conversation similar to what we just talked about with Bo Nix and TJ Finley. But I think Emory has handled this like a champ. And I didn't give him enough praise last week. So I'm going to this week. Because the kid has been accountable for his mistakes every single game. And being a Florida quarterback is a unique microscope to be under. It yep. really is. And I've talked about a lot. I've talked about that with Luke Del Rio, our, our buddy, and, and just how how unique that dynamic is. And he's somebody who's, I mean, he transferred two different times throughout his college career. And he's seen what this is like on the other side. And like, he's, he's got his dad. So he's been, he's lived in a million different places and all that stuff. So I really trust Luke's perspective. And I think Felipe struggled with that. To, to a good, like, to a really good deal. Like, I, I think that Felipe, when he's shushing the crowd and doing all those things, and Emory Jones got booed by the home crowd down 21-3 against Nick Saban. And all he's done since then is play an excellent three quarters against Alabama mm-hmm. and then go out and win comfortably in a rivalry game. And I know it was close until Florida dominated in the third quarter and they pulled away. <laughs> Callaway catches that fourth and five play and he still might be running for Tennessee. Uh, probably the, the key play of the game that really kind of flipped everything. But Emory became the second Florida quarterback to ever throw and run for 140 yards in the same game with the other being a certain Tim Tebow. How about that, man? That's a cool stat. And even said afterwards, he's like, I, I never really had, I haven't had a whole lot of rush, rushing games like that. Mm-hmm. But you see him get out into the open field and some of these design runs, Mullen's game plan was phenomenal. Yep. Really, really good. Had had those those looks in there where Emery was going to be able to take a draw or he was going to be able to call his own number. He had him air it out on the sideline as well. That's one of the things that Mullen has picked up on. Don't ask Emery Jones to make deep throws down the middle. Anthony Richardson's doing that at a better level. Mm-hmm. But get him moving out of the pocket or if you do want to take that shot downfield and stretch the field make sure that it's just looking off a safety and then coming back to his left or coming back to his right they even had a little double pass action in there with Whittemore shout out to Chris Doring a certain 1994 SEC championship callback like that they were able to do that but Emory looked comfortable and just as I said after Alabama I don't think it's a coincidence that his two best games came when Anthony Richardson was only the emergency quarterback yep that, what does that mean moving forward? Mullen at least has options. He just watched his team run all over Alabama in the final three quarters of that game and then run all over Tennessee's top 10 run defense. Now on the road at Kentucky, Emory Jones is going to start. And you can see if that confidence is there with potentially rotating in a healthy Anthony Richardson. And for all I know, he was good to go. And Mullen did kind of what I was hoping he would do by taking another week to see what you have in Emory Jones and get that confidence up. Because if you do feel like you're gonna need both of these quarterbacks to reach your potential in 2021, what you just did with Emory can have can pay dividends down the road. So I, I, was, I was very impressed with what we saw. I know there were some Florida fans who were frustrated that Tennessee was hanging around for a bit, but as you just said, 
don't necessarily get caught up in and in, in style points or anything like that. Focus on the big picture, and I thought Florida did what it set out to do. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was kind of the Super Bowl for this Tennessee team. This is, you know, playing with house money. We talked about it, about Florida versus Alabama a little bit. It's like you, you know, there was not really going to be a way talent-wise that Tennessee could win this game. Just honestly, they kept it as close as they probably could have. But that's when you start to see a guy like Dan Mullen separate himself. You know, you talked about yeah. the double pass. You talked about, and, 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 and you know, the Kyle Trask offense last year was very fun. Dan Mullen is most at home when he is a dual threat quarterback. We saw that in that game to a T. Whenever he has the ability to say, okay, boom, you know, this is kind of getting stopped a little bit. Let's try this over here. Let's try something new. Let's try to get this guy moving in kind of like an RPO action. Let's do a fake handoff. Let's do all these different things with his trickeration. And we talked about it with Jimbo as far as being a guy who's this old school pro style. We're just going to make these throws. And if they don't work, then that's on the quarterback. Whereas Mullen has the exact opposite approach. He gets guys open like nobody else. And when he can't get guys open, he gets the quarterback moving with his feet. Uh, And I think that, you know, Going early in the season, we talked about kind of the mismanagement of the quarterback situation. We didn't really talk about that as much as fans talked about that. Oh, like, you know, it seemed like Anthony Richardson was this dynamic guy. But, you know, taking all these different snaps, reading protections, you know, making decisions on different down and distances, that's what being a quarterback is about. And Emory Jones is obviously the best quarterback they have on the roster, especially going into SEC play. And so as fun as Anthony Richardson is, it's almost like, him not getting snaps is a blessing in disguise because now Emory Jones has kind of been this new quarterback where he has this new confidence. And this is exactly what you want going into SEC play. You want a guy that's not scared to, like you said, get the ball down the field in his own way. Because it's one thing if you have a guy like Emory was early in the season that's like, we joke about being a single threat quarterback where you can't throw the ball. It's a one thing. Yeah, he right. was. Oh, yeah. It's one thing if you're this quote unquote dual threat guy who isn't really a threat with his arm and the defense can bring guys down to the box and do all these different things. In this game, like you said, Tennessee has a respectable run defense, and they just had a field day. It looked like backyard football against that run defense. Florida's, Florida's offensive line is one of the, the most improved units mm-hmm. in, the, in the entire SEC. And seeing the way that they, they have really imposed their will through the first four weeks, that's an encouraging sign for Florida moving forward. And it's going to allow them to be able to stay on the field with any team mm-hmm. and e- e- even Georgia I'd still pick Georgia to win that game but that's that's at least going to be a really really good battle whereas if you were trying to rely on that offensive line in years past I, I would I would be saying no that's that, that, that that's just not going to work for them but they they have the different personnel and what I'm glad now is that we're going to be set up for a great showdown in the SEC East next weekend with Kentucky hosting Florida an undefeated Kentucky team is going to be hosting a, a top 10, I'm assuming, top 10 Florida team. And will Kentucky exercise those demons? I don't know. Let's go to the Kentucky-South Carolina game. This game was ugly. How ugly was it? Kentucky put the ball on the ground four times and Will Levis threw an interception. It was more like a punt. It was kind of a bad deep throw where he's kind of it, trying to force it into double coverage. South Carolina had a total of zero points off turnovers. Hold yeah, on. Do you remember the line on this game? I think it was Kentucky five five and a half point favorite. Because yeah, I, I was about say. to say they like barely covered. We covered. Like yeah. we talked about this in kind of the pregame. It's like we knew exactly how this game would go, and I was a little bit more bullish on Kentucky than you were, having watched a lot more Kentucky oh, I, than me. I was wrong. No, 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 no. But I'm saying that like this was a close, like ugly game. Like this is one of those games that you want Kentucky to kind of separate themselves, and this is the type of game they like to play for whatever reason. 
And South Carolina just really could not get much of anything going offensively. Not sure why Shane Beamer did an onside kick with two minutes left down 16 to 10. Go, go for the onside kick. I, I, I have no idea why these teams are like, oh, we're going to kick it deep and we're going to trust our defense to get stops. I don't know, man. Chris Rodriguez was running the football pretty well. It wasn't like they were holding him to two and a half yards of carry or something like that. And then sure enough, they don't get the football back. But regardless, two things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. One is that Kentucky's defense played excellent. Outside of Luke Doty's first drive of the second half, where, I mean, he looked <laughs> as good as I've seen him. He was awesome. Cats were swarming. Love J.J. Weaver, DeAndre Square, even though DeAndre Square like pushed a guy, pushed the Kentucky staffer on the sideline. Weird, weird moment. Um, that video caught. That's the beauty of Twitter.com. Jacquez uh, Jones in that front seven. They... They are a, a group that is going to be relentless. And if you're a Kentucky fan, you're relieved that your defense balled out after what was mostly a, a frustrating performance against Chattanooga. And against South Carolina on the road, they, they needed that defense to step up because, yeah, this Kentucky team can win in a few different ways. That's what they've shown in the first month of the season to get to 4-0. And getting out of Columbia with a win is an uncommon but at the same time we just said don't take these wins for granted oh yeah you're 2-0 in sec play you're 4-0 overall right now you get to host a top 10 florida team at night it's going to be great that's huge for your program kentucky not a complete football team and we'll get to that when we do the power rankings on the south carolina side this offense is in trouble <laughs> really what makes yeah. you say that <laughs> um i'm glad you asked that will because Kevin Harris, uh, might have heard of him. A lot of people were saying in the preseason that he was a no-doubter, first-team, all-SEC guy. Look, I like Kevin Harris, the player. It's been a rough start for him, and I don't know how much of it is coming off of the back injury, how much of it is just poor offensive line play. Whatever the case, this is a guy who ran for 210 last year against Kentucky when everyone and their mother knew that he was running the football, and the guy had 38 yards on 12 carries in the Kentucky game this year. Luke Doty had his moments in his first career start in the Shane Beamer era, but he can't really stretch the field, and he isn't going to get you a third and 12. That's just not his skill set. There was one play deep down the left sideline where uh, Yusef Gorka comes in and breaks it up, and that was like the best ball that he threw all day, but it was a better defensive play. But Doty is not one of these guys who can overcome drops. And South Carolina's receivers had plenty of those. Jalen Brooks had the one on fourth down that was just devastating. And he was accountable for it after. I thought it was a good little moment where Beamer consoles him on the sideline. Mm-hmm. And that's what you would hope for in that spot. But it doesn't change reality. And reality is South Carolina's passing game is not good, even though Josh Van has been really good to start off the year. The offense is just frustratingly bad. And the numbers are atrocious. You might want to earmuff at South Carolina fans because in three games against FBS competition, South Carolina has averaged 14.3 points. And even worse, the thing that you're going to hang your hat on, that ground game, that versatile rushing attack that we were talking about a couple weeks ago, how great it was going to be to have Marshawn Lloyd, to have Kevin Harris, to have Zaquandre White, to have all these different guys. 83 rushing yards per game on 2.5 yards per carry against uh, FBS competition. And the longest rush that South Carolina's had against an FBS opponent this year, 16 yards. Not great, not great. But here's the good news. See, I'm gonna give you a little, this is what we call a poop sandwich. <laughs> the hand strikes and it gives a flower. South Carolina's upcoming schedule, Troy at Tennessee, home against Fandy. You should be four and three at worst, and you could be five and two. 
you could realistically come out of that stretch at five and two, which would not be the worst thing in the world. And then you get some of this, can we go to a bowl game? for the rest of the year with Shane Beamer. And that's on the table. And then you could have a very motivated team because of what that would mean to those players. So that's that's the positive spin for South Carolina. But whoosh. offensively, Marcus Satterfield has some adjustments to make. And I'm not sure that they really have the guys to be able to get it done on the offensive line. That's the tough part. Okay. Um, not going to spend a ton of time on this one because I don't want to be too mean to Vandy fans. But Georgia Vandy, I've got stats. Oh, boy. And not just the 62 to nothing stat. Second largest SEC shutout in Georgia history. It was 35 to nothing by 11.30 a.m. Central Time. Sure was, Governor. It was. Uh, Vandy, for the game, not just in that first half hour, averaged 1.3 yards per pass attempt. Vandy had 77 yards. Georgia had 62 points. Tough. Brock Bowers outgained Vandy by himself, and he had five total touches. And Brock Bowers is great. I, I don't want to take away from him. He ran this little end around that that Todd Munkin drew up for him that made me feel like we we're watching a Kyle Shanahan offense because that's been the comp. That's what Mike Griffith came on and said. This staff thinks that Brock Bowers is like their George Kittle. And I could totally picture Kyle Shanahan drawing up something like that where you're like an end around to a tight end. Oh, when you have George Kittle, you can do that. When you have Brock Bowers, you can do that. Six catches and 109 yards more and he will match Georgia's entire 2020 production from the tight end position. Pretty good. He's awesome. Scored on three of those five touches, by the way. Both the starting quarterbacks of this game were out in the second quarter. Uh, that, that tells you kind of all you need to know. Why Kirby went to Stetson Bennett instead of Carson Beck, I still don't know. Everybody keeps saying it's all about practice, yada, yada, yada. I still think that's dumb if you're Kirby. And I think that practice, that that's a good message to try and send to your team in theory. But practice isn't going to tell you what you have in a four-star recruit who's in year two in your program. And sure, like I get it. Brock Vandegrift, he's the guy in waiting. He's the five-star true freshman. Gunnar Stockton is coming along. He's going to be a five-star freshman next year. And hey, maybe Arch Manning in a couple of years too. Everybody's talking about how well that visit went and all this stuff. Georgia but, quarterback names are the gift that just keeps giving, huh? Oh, they, they never get old. <laughs> but why wouldn't you want to see what Carson Beck can do? Right? Instead of putting Stetson Bennett out there, what do you need to see from Stetson Bennett? Nothing is changing with him. And if a kid has worked hard to earn that opportunity, I, I get it. You can still get Stetson Bennett some of those reps, but I just think it's a weird move. I, I think it's a, a strange move to not want to see more of Carson Beck. Credit Vandy for not leaving Ken Seals in there to die because he might have, and they changed up their game plan. They brought Seals back in a little bit later on. I thought Michael Wright played hard, Georgia native, really good high school football player. Vandy didn't give up in that game. That's the nicest thing I could say about a team who lost 62 to nothing. They had that fourth and one stand when Georgia was up 35 to nothing in that game. Kudos to that defense. You need, you know what? You need kids who aren't gonna look at the scoreboard when you're at Vandy. You just kind of need that. Cam Pierce made this like Odell Beckham play on the sideline. That was really cool. It didn't count, but it was cool. Those kids are still trying and that's a good sign. They're not just giving up. But yes, that was the most lopsided SEC game of 2021. That's safe to say. Um, let's move on. Let's move on. We don't need it. Sorry, Bandy fans. Last SEC game that we're going to get to before power rankings. Mizzou, Boston College. What a game, this, <laughs> this, this was fun. Yeah. This was... 
This was one of those games that, like, if you just, if you looked at coming into the season, you're like, all right, who cares? Bo- Mizzou, Boston College. With all due respect to Mizzou fans, y'all weren't even excited about this. This wasn't a home game for you or anything. With the way that this storyline kind of builds up with Drinkowitz saying that I wish we had a regional game and then Jeff Halfley says, hey, I wish you would have let me know and I would have come play, come and played this game in Columbia. That, that's great. That was, that was a little bit of WWE back and forth. And then it turned into a fun football game and fun because these defenses are not very good. Boston College wins this game in overtime. They rush the field after beating Mizzou. Maybe it's because you won on a walk-off. Walk-off interceptions are kind of cool. You're 4-0, you're feeling good. Whatever, rushing the field after beating Mizzou is... Um, cre- credit to Eli Drinkwitz. Credit to you. yeah. Basilek had a bad throw to Chisholm in overtime, and that was kind of all she wrote for, for Mizzou. Mizzou's frustrating, they just are. They, they do some things well, and Tyler Beatty has been excellent. I'll continue to sing his praises. Mm-hmm. Connor Basilek, really good on the intermediate throws. He can pick you apart that way, but still not really stretching the field at the way that they need to. Mizzou is excellent in the kicking game. How about that 56 yard boot at the end of regulation from Harrison Mevis? Dude's a weapon. Dude is a weapon. He's like a 240 pound kicker. Big fan of that. Mm-hmm. Love to see that. And, you know, defensively, Steve Wilkes's group, they want to force turnovers. That's their big thing. And they've done that so far. But holy cow, that defensive line gets zero push against the run. Boston College did whatever it wanted for basically that entire game. And you cannot go on the road and let up 275 rushing yards on the ground. They, they basically copied their exact same flawed run defense plan against Kentucky of, of what they did a few weeks ago in Lexington. They allow, they're right now uh, three games against FBS competition, allowing 263 rushing yards. With all due respect to our guy, Blaze, Blaze Aldridge, 230-pound Blaze Aldridge, they miss Nick Bolton. They do. They just do. And I don't want to say it's all because of that, because... The defensive line is really the biggest area of concern right now. But I think Bolton was just one of those guys who plugged up some holes for you. And they have holes right now in that defense. That can be a pretty bad matchup next week against Tennessee. With Tyon Evans, Jabari Small, Hennon Hooker, all of those guys can beat you with their legs. And if Mizzou doesn't figure some things out in a hurry, ooh, it's going to be a repeat of what they had last year against Tennessee. A very different Tennessee team, but a Tennessee team that would be content to run the ball 50 times in that game and make South Carolina or make make Mizzou actually force them off the field, which I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah, we got a great slate next week. Slate is awesome. Oh my gosh. We have games we have because we have Arkansas Georgia playing at noon, which awesome that that's set up that way. Don't know how that happened. We get Ole Miss and Bama and then at night, we get the Florida-Kentucky game. So games, really good competitive SEC games at each part of the day. Always love to see that. Oh, and then a little, little late night, you know, get get the the Tiger Bowl in Death Valley. Mm-hmm. Game that starts at 9 o'clock Eastern time. It is going to be an awesome day of college football next week. I cannot wait for that. Will, should we do some power rankings? Yes, sir. Let's go. Let's do it. I've been waiting to do this. I don't like doing it after one or two games. I think it's a little bit tough. Bigger sample size. So um, this is basically, 
I, I, I try not to base so much of this on preseason. I want to base it on the actual football that we've seen these teams play. And I try and not hold on to too many of these preseason narratives. So, Arkansas number one, got it. Close though, <laughs> close. All right, let's let's go let's go reverse order. Let's go reverse order. Uh, let's start with Vandy, because Vandy's fourteen, and I don't need to explain that. South Carolina at thirteen, Tennessee at twelve, Mississippi State at eleven, Mizzou at ten, and I'll I'll explain I'll explain these as well. So don't worry. Nine, I have Auburn. Eight, I have Kentucky. Seven, I have LSU. Six, A and M. Five, Florida. Well, you gave me a look after that one. We're gonna. Well, I'll have to talk through the A and M one. Five, Florida. Four, Ole Miss. Three, Arkansas. Two, Alabama. One, Georgia. So. Let's go through the, the biggest sort of debates that I had coming up with, with some of this. We, we, we start with Georgia and Bama for, for number one. Right. Interchangeable pretty much at this point. Who cares? Yeah, it's like, okay, you think Bama's number one? Okay, fine. They're the best two teams in college football. Yeah, <laughs> fine, okay, whatever. Okay, you could have that. Thing. Yeah. We could very well have time to be able to figure that out in Atlanta. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I know there are people probably wondering, hey, Clemson's 2-2 two and two now. Does that change how we feel about Georgia? And yeah, maybe maybe a little bit, but Georgia also destroyed the other three teams that it played. And I get it, UAB, Vandy, not exactly competing for playoff spots. South Carolina not competing for a playoff spot either. Both Bama and Georgia home games against top fifteen teams next week should be great to see. We're getting so Georgia against Arkansas is one versus three in my power rankings, and then Bama Ole Miss is two versus four. So that could be telling to see where those teams have made those adjustments. Will we need to see the full Georgia offense with JT Daniels for 60 minutes against that Arkansas defense? Yeah, I would I would imagine so. And we're gonna find out a lot about Alabama's run game improvements as well against Kiffin with Ely and Snoop Connor and those guys. But the reason I picked Georgia is if they played neutral site tomorrow, I'd probably still pick Georgia to win that game. That's that's based on the sample size that we've seen. My impression of Georgia has has improved after what I saw from after what I thought about them in the preseason. This might so that's, that's, be the year. I hate to say it, man, but it's like the Clemson game is usually that game they lose. Obviously, they don't play Bama this year, so it's like Florida's obviously going to be a big one. But I don't know, man. It's like they still haven't played. That's the crazy thing is their offense still has not clicked, and they're just blowing teams out. And against you know Clemson. Their defense just put on a show. So it's like when that offense really starts hitting, I, it's going to be exciting. Yeah. And and for, for everybody saying, well, why aren't you higher on Bama's offense? Didn't didn't you see them kind of figure things out against, against Southern Miss? Um, Billingsley was involved, which is always good to see. And Jameson Williams, very, very fast. I've, that's that's my analysis of, of Jameson Williams, the Ohio State transfer. He is he could beat me in a race. Yes. What does Michael Scott say with the the uh, the five k? I'm very fast. Very fast. I think that right now you can go either way on that, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're wrong. If you think Bama is the best team in the SEC, if you think Bama is the best team in college football, that is perfectly fine. Six through nine is a mess. Let me go through that again. I have AM at six, LSU at seven, Kentucky at eight, Auburn at nine. Now Kentucky is the only undefeated team of that bunch. Those three other teams are sitting there at three and one, having each lost to a um, 
I'll say respected power five team. Yeah, all three of those losses were to uh, teams that are now ranked in AP top 25 with uh, UCLA, I believe is still in the top 25. They were 24 coming into the weekend. So to kind of take that for what it is, on one hand, why should LSU be ranked ahead of Kentucky? Because cats are two and zero against power five competition. LSU still, you can't totally dismiss what we saw against UCLA. I think they have their limitations right now, but that game in Lexington is in two weeks. And I'd probably still pick LSU to win that game. I think I would. Kentucky's a flawed football team. They're minus nine in turnover margin, and they're 4-0. They have ball security issues galore. C-Rod is my guy. I will go to bat for C-Rod, but he has fumbleitis right now. That dude cannot hang on to the football. Josh Ali fumbled twice. Cavassier smoke lost one as well. Kentucky fans are sitting there wondering, what, what in the world are they putting on their hands before these games? Because they can't hold on to the football and against a better team, which with all due respect to Mizzou and South Carolina, against a better team, that will hurt Kentucky. And they, they are not a, a clean football team by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think Kentucky fans would even say that. God bless Kentucky, man. They are, they've been playing this like Titans-Jags game for like three years. Every weekend it's just like, a one-score game that's just any play could go either way, and you just are on the edge of your seat, like kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> it's like I love that brand that Mark Stoops has because they could play Florida like that. You know what I'm saying? I don't think they can necessarily play Georgia like that because Georgia plays really like mistake-free football. But it's like they are that type of team that they will literally play to their level of competition, no matter what it is. I can't wait to see how Kentucky's front seven handles Florida's ground game. Yep. That's going to tell us a lot about kind of where they stand in the SEC hierarchy, if they are really worthy of being the number two team in the East, of course. And then if you can compete with Florida after what we saw Florida do against Bama, that says a lot about where, where you're at and, and how you're going to be able to, to sustain success in SEC play. But I kind of look at that matchup against LSU coming up here, and I'm like, well, LSU thrives off turnovers. And if Kentucky doesn't have that cleaned up, um, that's that's a problem. And even though I didn't necessarily change a lot of what I thought about LSU, it still was a this isn't 2020 anymore type of performance on the road against Mississippi State. Some, some would argue that they need turnovers to be successful at offense. Yeah. So if Kentucky's going to give them those, that's all they want. Here's a question. Are we sure this version of A&M is even a good team? No, I kind of struggle with sure not. <laughs> Look, I put them at six. Because I think Arkansas, I think Arkansas looks the part, and I still am a believer that they're going to be able to hang around with these teams. And I don't think Alabama is necessarily going to blow them out, but I would definitely take Alabama to win that game in College Station. That's going to be on October 9th. and this coming into this season, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said that. But with Zach Calzada as quarterback and with Jimbo Fisher calling plays for Zach Calzada, yeah, I don't have confidence in that. But are we sure that this version of AM is really that good? Because they easily could have lost against Colorado. And I know they, they come back and they, and they win that game late and it's this great moment and, and you feel like, hey, maybe this is just gonna be the identity. Put it on the shoulders of the defense. Offense comes up with some timely plays. It's reminiscent a little bit of 2019 Auburn, something like that. But they beat New Mexico and then they lost to Arkansas in a pretty, pretty decisive way. Listen, you know? It's not the Bama game that I'm scared of. I mean, it it's the old Miss game. Because knowing yeah, Lane Kiffin one. and how much he likes to kind of rub guys' noses in it, 
you got this dude Jimbo who's kind of like this older like grandpa type of guy and you got Lane Kiffin who's obviously making a fraction of his contract who probably wants to go out there and show him what's what's up you know what I'm saying he probably wants to say all right dude if you call that type of game against me you're losing my 30. Like, we're going to yeah. get dudes in motion. We're going to get dudes running in the open field. And as good as your defense can be, if you're playing that type of offense, you can't keep up with this Ole Miss team. So where would you have A&M? I don't think you're you could have wrong. them as low as eight. I don't think you're wrong. You know what I'm saying? It, I, it's just, it's funny because it's like, no, I couldn't put I couldn't put LSU over them. I couldn't put Kentucky over them. That's when it starts to like, as much as I hate to say it, that's when like recruiting matters because it's like, what is your true floor? You know what I'm saying? And, and an A&M could get on the field with a lesser SEC team and just wipe the floor with them in ways that maybe like a Kentucky couldn't. Like, you, like yeah. if, if A&M played South Carolina right now, I'm sure they'd blow them out. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of anything. But that's the thing because it's like, that feels right because there's not really a team under them that I could confidently say like, could I confidently say Auburn could beat them? No. LSU? No. Kentucky? But it's just kind of funny that like, they started off at like 1A and like, you know I'm saying? After a couple of weeks, it's just like, yep, they're the same. I hate to say they're the same old A&M, but. Yeah, they're, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a really tough, tough program to, um, I, don't, I don't want to say to root for. I, I was going to say to bet on. Yep, to bet on. Was, sure. because, because just, just, just take hunters in A&M games moving forward. I would bet on AM to cover any spreads. I, I wouldn't feel good about that. But they're, they're a tough program to project where they are. And this, this stretch coming up is going to be telling because there is no guarantee that Zach Calzada is going to be up to snuff against Zach Garnett. Mm-hmm. We've sung Zach Garnett's praises yeah. a lot. There's just no guarantee with that. Mississippi State did some things to LSU that really frustrated them up front, and that could easily repeat itself. I don't care that that's a home game. doesn't necessarily matter at this point. So I, I think you could have AM as low as eight. But with that defense, the only score after that, that Burks TD where long touchdown and why are you playing press coverage with him <laughs> on the outside? Bad, bad, bad idea. That's never going to work in your favor. But the only score that they allowed after that was a field goal when they had the short field on the Calzada pick. So even though that was a bit of a setback for the defense, still think I mean, that they're But Jefferson right. was hurt. Like he was out there pushing the pile to hurt his leg. True, true. Um, what what is the Haynes King timetable? Because that's that's obviously mid October. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, <sighs> and that's ambitious though. I, I and look, I kind of viewed that as he was going to be able to come in, and if A and M could just get there with one loss, which now I think that's out the window because I don't think they'd beat Bama. But if they could just get him back with that one loss, then he could steady the ship. But now that I'm thinking about it. This might just be a problem the entire year for their offense. Haynes King didn't look particularly good before he went down. He struggled. Yeah, he that's struggled against Kent State. Pretty true. Yeah, so this might just be a, a, a personnel type issue, and they're going to have to make some adjustments. They've got to figure out their identity on offense. They don't have one right now. They just don't, and that's going to limit them moving forward. Um, okay, ten through thirteen. All of those teams have multiple losses. Ten through thirteen, by the way is Mizzou, Mississippi State, Tennessee, South Carolina. So they're all sitting there at two and two. Kind of mix and match a little bit, but I'll explain some of my reasoning here. Mizzou played down to the wire against two power five teams on the road. Um, Not saying that that Kentucky game, they were 
super, super close because I thought Kentucky sort of let them back in that game a little bit too much, but they were playing down to the wire on the road against two Power 5 teams who are 4-0 right now. So Mizzou deserves at least some credit for that. That's why I had them ahead of those other teams. Here's a question. Tennessee get upgraded for Bowling Green beating Minnesota? <laughs> Wasn't prepared for that question. Sure, yeah, go ahead. How about that? Yeah, PJ Fleck, what's a what's a really quick way to quiet any sort of USC rumors? Uh, lose to Bowling Green is a 30-point favorite. Huge That'll do it. Great move by PJ Fleck. Smart. What's going to help your recruiting? Um, yeah, do something like that. That'll work out for you. So that's kind of why, like, right, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I didn't give Tennessee necessarily an upgrade for that. I think Tennessee has, has its flaws right now. And offensively, it's still a work in progress. I, I, I always love them out of the gates. They're... Heupel's scripts early on always seem like, oh my God, nobody's going to stop Tennessee today. <laughs> they have these two, like three minute possessions and you're just like, what was that? And I know there are some Florida fans thinking, oh boy, we're in for a 60 minute dogfight. And then kind of after the script goes a little bit out the window and defense makes some adjustments, Tennessee just not quite that same football team in their defense. Better than what I thought it was going to be coming into the year, but not good enough to necessarily keep them in for an entire game against a good team on the road. So that's why I kind of docked them a little bit. It's like out of the gate, they're like, okay, we got the strategy, we got the leg wraps, we're ready to go. You get past that first quarter mile, it's like, <laughs> you get You get Michael Scott, his face is just white. I've never eaten so much fettuccine Alfredo in my entire life. Yeah, once you get past those three different trickeration screens, it's like, oh, we gotta run, we gotta run stick or something. This is Buddy. Like yeah, and if we're talking about quality of wins, Mississippi State beat NC State. I was about to say, that's who gets upgraded. There we go. With the blowout of NC State, which is now a national power. Oh, yeah. And then South Carolina is sitting there at 13. Yeah, I think you have to knock South Carolina when your one win against an FBS team was a, a last-second win against East Carolina. 0-2 against Power 5 competition, and I, I thought had a favorable matchup at home against Kentucky and just did not necessarily capitalize on some of those opportunities that were gifted, just gifted to them, did not work. And then Arkansas over Ole Miss at number three. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, sorry. I had Arkansas at three, Ole Miss at four. I think it's pretty easy to justify at this point because Arkansas beat two top 15 teams by double digits, mm -hmm. and Ole Miss has been excellent and has already surpassed kind of where I thought they were going to be. But Louisville was the lone power five foe. So if you're kind of looking at that from that standpoint, Ole Miss has a monumental game on the road against Alabama, needless to say. And that will tell us maybe more than anything that we've learned in these first three games against Ole Miss. But um, what is this defense capable of, I think, is the question that we're going to have answered. If they're getting blown off the field the same way they did last year when they hosted Alabama, then we're going to kind of go back to the drawing board maybe with Ole Miss's ceiling. Uh, maybe that's fair. Maybe that's not fair. But that's kind of why I'm a little bit in wait-and-see mode and why I'd rather have Arkansas in that number three spot as the best non-Georgia-Alabama team in the SEC. Agree or disagree with that? 
Yeah, and and like we've been kind of like memeing with Bowling Green and stuff, but honestly, man, that Louisville win was looking better and better for Ole Miss because they beat UCF and then they beat FSU, which FSU is yeah. obviously not good or anything, but it's like they're not at FSU's level. You know what I'm saying? Like they're gonna be like kind of like middle top of the pack in that conference, which is obviously wide open. So yeah, I'm I'm very interested by that. I, I think that yeah, I, I think you nailed it. It's got to be Georgia number one as as kind of sus as that Clemson win looks. They've they looked bad for a second outside of that win, really. Uh, yeah. And then Bama, obviously, you know, they blew out Miami. That was a solid win. But again, Michigan State. Uh, then that Florida game. Florida seems to be a very good team. That that's that's a quality W. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, like you said, the interesting one right now is Arkansas and Ole Miss to me. I'm so fascinated by Ole Miss, man. I could not buy enough. Ole Miss stock number one, and then just because there's so there's no ceiling on what they do. I mean, they could really. I, they could lead the country in scoring from here on out. It wouldn't shock me. Uh, and then Arkansas, obviously, yeah. I mean, their resume is, like we said, best in the conference. I, I think that top four is, like, those are four, at this point, true contenders until we're proven otherwise. I agree with you. And it's going to be an awesome game for the Heisman Trophy race. Hopefully, you got those odds early for Matt Corral going into the season. Oh, yeah. Didn't necessarily wait until they were plus 150 or wherever they dropped down to now that he's the Heisman favorite. Bryce Young against Matt Corral. Awesome, awesome matchup. Cannot wait for it. The slate is is phenomenal. And I don't want to undersell any game that we have coming up next Saturday, but we're going to try and dig into all those with the midweek pod. The plan, so this is a funny story. Oh, boy. So originally the plan was going to be, and I think I said this on the pod last week, we were going to have Grant Morgan on the preview pod, but then we weren't going to be able to get him until Thursday. His schedule got a little bit busy part of being the national darling that Arkansas is right now, the schedule fills up. The plan tentatively is to be able to get him this week. Would love to be able to have him back on. The other part of the plan, and there's some irony in this. Hmm. So I have an interview with Lars Anderson. Lars Anderson has been covering college football for the last 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. He has written multiple books about Alabama. His latest book is about Dabo. So we talked about some Clemson stuff in here. And this was recorded, we recorded this last Thursday. So we recorded this before the Clemson loss. Oh boy. So I was hopefully going to be able to, to dig into that this week. Keep in mind, and I'll remind everyone when we get to that, that there are some stuff in there that you're going to be like, why didn't you ask Dabo? About, or why didn't you ask about Dabo going to two and two or something like that? When really it was more of a big picture type interview about Dabo, but some really fascinating perspective into his world. And it wasn't one of these books that was co-written with Dabo which I find better. Right. It's not oh, in Dabo's yeah. Those words. are like as much as we love the last dance, it's like you want a little bit of you want a little bit of objectivity in there, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Dabo didn't participate in this book. So, great interview with Lars. Talked not just about Clemson stuff as well. I don't want everybody to think that we just talked about Dabo for for a half hour or whatever, but some big picture college football stuff and he knows coaches very, very well, so I think people will enjoy that. So, tentative plan is to be able to have Lars and to be able to have Grant Morgan coming up on the midweek pod hopefully everybody was able to catch up on all that stuff i know we've been doing longer midweek pods so hopefully everybody is is good with those you can kind of jump around with some of those interviews if you don't want to necessarily listen back to some of the preview stuff that we do that we did because obviously games have already been played but thank you to everybody who has already left us a five-star review if you have not 
definitely go do that. Subscribe if you're not already subscribed. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Put your email address in. Cannot recommend enough. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. New episodes with Matt Hayes are dropping. They are excellent. Cannot recommend them enough. And go subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Great video on Vince Young. Great little 10 minute video. You're looking for something to maybe watch while you're eating lunch or something like that. Awesome, awesome stuff from Matt Hayes with Saturday Lives Forever. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with figuring it out or bold and brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.